This morning, we're starting a new sermon series on Genesis chapters 37 through 50, and we're calling this series The Life of Joseph, Why Evil Can't Thwart God's Promises. And I thought it would help to start by giving you a big picture of what's happening in the book of Genesis so you can see the role that the life of Joseph has in, in what Moses, Moses is the author of Genesis, so that you can see the role that the life of Joseph has in this book. So Genesis chapter 1 and 2, Moses tells us that God created the heavens and the earth, he created the universe, he created planet earth, this beautiful planet that we're living on, he created Adam and Eve, and through his amazing creation, he displays that he has infinite power, that he has flawless wisdom with what he's created, and that he is overflowing with perfect goodness and love and compassion. And so creation shows us clearly we have every reason to trust God constantly, to obey God joyfully, and to love God supremely above everything else. That's the big message from Genesis 1 and 2. But then tragically in Genesis chapter 3, Satan comes on the scene in the form of a serpent and he tempts Adam and Eve and they do what we've all done. They turn their backs on God and they decide we're going to just make up our own minds about how we're going to live. That's what the Bible calls sin. And as a result of their sin, the whole world moved from being under God's blessing, under his favor, under his love and care, the whole world moved from being under God's blessing to being under God's curse, God's judgment, God's wrath. That's chapter 3. But, but also in chapter 3, there is a breathtaking promise. It's just stunning when you read it. God promises that even though the world is under the curse, one of Eve's offspring is going to crush the serpent's head. Which means that a human being is going to be born who is going to break Satan's power. That's what the promise is. Break Satan's power, destroy Satan and his work so we can be forgiven and restored to God. And the whole Bible is pointing, book of Genesis and the rest of the Bible is pointing ahead towards who fulfills that promise. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus was born fully human, an offspring of Eve, just like the promise said, but he was also fully God. And he died on the cross to pay for the sins, all the sins of all those who would put their trust in him. And by means of dying on the cross, paying for sin, he broke Satan's power so that we could be forgiven, to be restored to God, be moved from being under the curse to being under God's blessing. So that's the amazing promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. But then, tragically, in Genesis 4 through 11, we see sin growing and spreading until by the time we get to Genesis 11, from all that we can see, the whole world is fully just covered with the slime of sin. And we're thinking, how can God ever fulfill these promises? Look at what has happened in the world. But in Genesis chapter 12, again, even though the world is under God's curse, God raises up Abraham and promises Abraham, even though the world is under the curse, Abraham, one of your offspring, is going to bring my blessing 
to people from every ethnic group. Abraham, one of your offspring, is going to bring the blessing of God to people from every nation, tongue, and tribe so that people will be forgiven for their sins, be restored to God, come into the joy of knowing and loving and worshiping God. Abraham, one of your seed, one of your offspring, is going to do that. Now, that's the same person as was promised back in Genesis chapter 3. It's pointing ahead towards Jesus. Jesus was the great, 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 great grandson of Abraham. And by dying on the cross, he brought God's blessing. And he is bringing, the word is spreading to every nation, tongue, and tribe coming into the blessing of forgiveness through Jesus and knowing God. So Genesis 12 through the very end, chapter 50, shows God repeating that promise and securing that promise. He needs to secure that promise because he promised that the Messiah would be born through the offspring of Abraham, and then it was through Jacob, through the people of Israel, and so God is protecting the people of Israel through these chapters. So the whole rest of Genesis, the life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph is all about God repeating the promise of salvation through the Messiah and securing the promise of salvation through the Messiah, and that's the point of the life of Joseph, which brings us to Genesis 37 through 50. Now, we've been working on growing in our Bible study skills as a church. One of our passions is to see each person here at Grace Church for you to become confident that you can open up the Bible by yourself with the help of God, prayerfully studying God's Word, and that you can learn from God's Word for yourself. Because the more we are each studying God's Word and then sharing with each other what we're learning, the stronger we become as a church the more the gospel will advance here in Abu Dhabi in the Middle East through us and, and others that we touch, and the more glory is going to come to Jesus Christ. So we're growing in our own abilities, skills, and studying the Bible. Now, we just finished the book of 1 Peter, but Genesis is a different kind of book than 1 Peter. 1 Peter was a book of teaching. The book of Genesis is a book of history. So how do you study a book of history? Well, in, in one way, it's the same. Our goal is to figure out what is the author saying. So what's Moses saying in this book? But the way we do that with a book of history is different because when you study history, what we want to look at is what events does Moses choose to describe? What historical events does he choose to mention? And what does he emphasize about those events? And as we look at the string of events that Moses mentions and what he emphasizes about each of those events, we will see the truths that he's teaching. That's what we're going to be working on this morning and these next few months as we're going through the, book of Gen the rest of the book of Genesis. So with that in mind, let's take a look at Genesis 37. And let's ask, what does Moses emphasize in the first part of this chapter? As he's setting the stage for the story of Joseph, what does Moses emphasize? And I want us to read verses 1 through 11. And I want you to notice how many times Moses uses the word hate, and how many times he uses the word dream. Very important, because that's what he's emphasizing here. Start with verse 1. Jacob, you know, Jacob was Joseph's father. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojourning, in the land of Canaan. That's modern-day Palestine. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. 
He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. These were his half-brothers. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him, Jacob made Joseph, Israel. By the way, Israel is the same word for Jacob. He made him, his son, a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I've I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now Joseph is 17 years old. He has 10 older brothers. And notice how Moses emphasizes the brothers' growing hatred of Joseph. Did you see that? First of all, they hate him because Jacob, his father, wrongly had chosen one of his sons to be the favorite and was letting that be clearly known. That was wrong for Jacob to do, but that's one of the reasons the brothers hated Joseph. But then they hated him even more because of these dreams that he had. And and notice how much Moses emphasizes dreams. Ten times he uses the word dream in some form. So what should we think about these dreams? Huge place in this story. What, what role do they have? And one thing I noticed is that there are four times already in the book of Genesis where Moses describes dreams, and each of those times the dream is from God. It's given from God for our benefit, for the benefit of those who received it. So because the previous four dreams mentioned in the book of Moses are moving in that direction, We should also assume, unless Moses tells us something different, which I don't see any evidence for it here, that this is the point here. These dreams are from God. These are from God to Joseph. Now, should Joseph have shared these dreams? Read a lot of commentators. They have different opinions. I don't think Moses gives us enough information at this point to make a decision on that. Joseph might have been sharing these dreams like a spoiled, proud kid, right? You're all going to bow down to me. Or he could have been sharing these dreams like with, with like bewilderment. I had a dream, and here's what happened. And I had, I had another dream. Here's what happened. So I don't think we know yet from what Moses has written which way it goes. 
But here's what I think is happening in the first 11 verses. I think what Moses wants us walking away with from this first section is that even though Joseph's dreams show that in the future he will have a position of authority, yet what's happening right now is that his brothers have growing hostility, jealousy, and anger, hatred towards him. And so we're feeling this tension in the story, these amazing dreams, and yet the brothers growing hostility. So we should wonder at this point, what about Joseph? Is he just a spoiled, proud kid, or is he like a humble servant? And, and Moses, I think, answers that question in the next section, verses 12 through 17. What should we think about Joseph? Look at what Moses emphasizes here. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And Joseph said to him, his father, Here I am. Now, now pause there. I didn't know this before this week, but that phrase, Here I am, so far, every time it's used in the book of Genesis, it's very significant. It's used in Genesis 22 when God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac. And Abraham says, here I am. Hebrew, hineni, here I am. When God brings a dream to Jacob, Jacob says to God, here I am, hineni. When Esau's father asks him, go hunt something, make me some stew, Esau's response is, here I am. Uh, when Samuel later on in the, in the Old Testament is in the temple and God speaks to him, he says, Hineni, here I am. When Isaiah sees the vision of God's glory in Isaiah chapter 6, he says, here I am to God. So this is a significant phrase and I think that this is just rich with meaning here because of how it's been used so far in the book of Genesis. This points toward the fact that Joseph is a humble, responsive son and I think that's spelled out even more in verses 14 through 17, let me show you how. So he said, his dad said, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me please, were they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They've gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. Now, another new thing I learned this week was that this was not a trip of a couple of kilometers here for Joseph to hunt. It's not there like maybe a half a kilometer away or three or four kilometers. The distance from, let's get the map up here. Do we have a map? There it is. So the distance from Hebron where they were up to Shechem was around 70 kilometers, 70 kilometers. And then from Shechem up to Dothan was another 40 kilometers. So this is a trip of 110 kilometers that Joseph took in order to find his brothers. And even after he'd already traveled 70 and they weren't there, he traveled the other 40 in order to obey his father and to find his brothers. So I think the, the reason that Moses emphasizes this so much in terms of the details of this story is because he wants us to understand at this point, Joseph is not a spoiled brat. He's not a spoiled, proud kid. Joseph is a humble, obedient son, responsive to God, and that's what, we, what Moses wants us to be understanding about him. 
Joseph, in other words, let me just summarize this next section. I think the punchline here, or the, the, the summary is Joseph was humble and obedient. Okay, but now if Joseph has traveled 110 kilometers to find the brothers, maybe the brothers have softened their hearts towards him. Maybe. Let's ask, do, brothers, do Joseph's brothers still hate him? Uh, the answer is yes. Verses 18 through 20. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. So Joseph's brothers still hate him. They don't care how far he has traveled. They hate him because of his dreams, and they hate him so much that they are going to kill him. So now at this point, we readers, we're really feeling this, this tension rising here. Even though Joseph's dreams from God he shares them humbly, show that Joseph is going to be in a position of authority. Even though God is saying through these dreams, Joseph is going to have a future position of authority. Yet we see that his brothers look like their wickedness is going to destroy God's promises, is going to disrupt God's plan, is going to make impossible God's purposes. So let's look at this next section and ask, is there any hope for Joseph? Brothers are planning on killing him. Any hope here for Joseph? Verse 21, but when Reuben heard it, heard that the brothers were going to kill him, he rescued Joseph out of their hands. Okay, there's some good news here, saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he, Reuben, might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him, didn't kill him, threw him into the pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So here we see, okay, maybe there's still some hope for this promise. Brothers were going to kill him. Reuben has intervened. They're not going to kill him. Reuben wants to rescue him. Reuben wants to restore Joseph back to his, his father. Maybe there's hope. We're thinking maybe Joseph won't be killed. So let's ask, does Reuben's plan work? And that's what Moses tells us in verses 25 through 28. Does his plan work? Verse 25, then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah... Not Reuben. Reuben's out of the picture. He's probably taking care of the sheep. He's not, we'll read later. He's not, not, not part of this conversation here. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother. He's our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by. They drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, they took Joseph to Egypt. He's like I said, Reuben is somewhere else. We'll see that in the next section. Maybe taking care of the sheep. And while he's gone, the other brothers say, wait a minute, um, traders are coming near. Why should we kill him? Let's make some money. And so they sell 
their brother Joseph into slavery, and Joseph is taken to Egypt. So Reuben's plan does not work. True, but yes, Joseph hasn't been killed, and yet he's now a slave. It looks like maybe Joseph's brother's evil has thwarted God's promise. Joseph is now tied up. He's on his way, donkey, camel, whatever. He's going to be a slave in Egypt. And look at how Moses ends this chapter. What note does this chapter end on? The answer is grief and sorrow and despair. Start in verse 29. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. Ah! And he just tears his robe. That's a powerful sign of absolute devastation and grief and hopelessness. And returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone. Where shall I go? That is, I might as well die. So he is overwhelmed with grief and sorrow at this point. Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No. I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. That means I'm just going to mourn until he dies. Thus his father wept for him. Verse 36, Meanwhile the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar. Joseph wasn't able to escape on the way. He is sold now as a slave to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. This last section is just full of grief and sorrow and mourning and devastation and hopelessness. And that's where Moses ends this first section about Joseph's life. And the next chapter doesn't talk about Joseph at all. Take a little other journey next week. And so, so Moses wants us to have some kind of a, uh, like a little time to pause and what's happened? What's going to take place here? So I want us to think about what does this mean for us from this chapter and then from what we're going to see happening in the future with Joseph. So let me give you three takeaways as we ask what does this mean for us. Three takeaways which I hope God will use in our lives as a church this morning. First of all, this teaches us clearly that God's people, God's beloved, people who are trusting Jesus, God's people face situations that look completely hopeless. Can you feel how hopeless Joseph could have felt at this point? Can you feel how completely hopeless his father and Reuben did feel at this point? Jacob has been torn away from his family, torn away from his home, and he's transported to far away Egypt where he is now a slave 
hopeless situation. This is absolutely devastating and tragic and heartbreaking. And in this passage, and in the rest of the life of Joseph, we're going to see that Joseph is a godly man. He loves God. He trusts God. He's forgiven because of, he's trusting what God would do through the Messiah. Joseph is a godly man. So here we see a godly man, saved man, man who God loves, facing a seemingly hopeless situation, a situation that looks completely hopeless. And and I would guess that some of you this morning are facing a situation that looks hopeless. And every believer will go through situations that look hopeless. Maybe you have chronic pain. Maybe it's just debilitating migraines or, or some other kind of chronic pain and the doctors have, have no solution and, and you're just, just, it looks hopeless to you. Just pain as far ahead as you can see. Maybe someone at the workplace has it out for you. They just, they don't like you. They're angry against you. They're, they're undermining your work. They're gossiping about you. It just looks absolutely hopeless. Maybe you've had to take a big cut in pay and you're looking at, at what's coming in and at what's going out and at your budget and it, it just looks hopeless. Maybe something with one of your children. Maybe, maybe one of your children is just really starting to rebel and, and it's like, and just... It looks absolutely hopeless from the way that they're responding. Or maybe there's a, a conflict in your, in your extended family, maybe in your marriage, maybe in, in, a, in a relationship you have, and, and, it, and it looks hopeless. So godly people face situations that look completely hopeless. That's the first truth. So if you're going through a situation that looks completely hopeless, don't start to wonder if God loves you. Don't start to wonder if, I thought I was saved, I thought I was forgiven. Joseph was a godly man. He went through a totally hopeless situation. If you're going through a hopeless situation, it doesn't mean you're not trusting Jesus. You know if you're trusting Jesus. Godly people who trust Jesus go through situations that look completely hopeless. You're in good company, you and Joseph, okay, and, and Abraham and Sarah, and I can just go on down through the list of people in the Bible who face these situations. So that's the first truth. God's people will face situations that look hopeless. But the second truth is no matter how hopeless things look, God is at work in wonderful ways. I said that the theme of Genesis was God repeating and securing the promise of the Messiah being born through the people of, of Israel. God had promised through the seed of Abraham, through the people of Israel, the Messiah is going to be born. And so, through the book of Genesis, the people of Israel need to be protected, and that's what's happening here. It's a big spoiler alert, okay? I'm going to tell you what happens at the end of the story, because we don't want to stop right here. Very important. So Joseph ends up in Egypt, and while he is there, God tells him that there's going to be a great famine coming upon that whole region, and that Egypt should store up its surplus food while they have seven prosperous years in order to handle the seven lean years that are coming. We're going to come to that point. And Pharaoh hears about what Joseph is saying, is so impressed with Joseph and what he is saying that Pharaoh promotes Joseph to being in the number two position over all of Egypt. I mean, think of the 
prestige and the power and the authority that Joseph had, the number two man in all of Egypt. And so Joseph is in charge of all the food, storing the extra food, preparing for those years that are coming up, a famine, and then the famine comes. And it is frightening. It is horrifying. And the people of Israel run out of food. No food. But the brothers... Joseph's brothers had heard that there's food in Egypt. And so they go down to Egypt with some money to buy food. And they come before the number two man in Egypt without knowing that this is Joseph. And they bow down before him. And they buy food from him. And God saves the people of Israel. He is securing the promise of the Messiah through providing Israel with food through having Joseph be sold into slavery, giving him a dream about the seven fat years, the seven lean years, Joseph being promoted to the number two position and providing food for the people of Israel. Here's how Joseph summarizes this in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. This is an amazing verse. I would urge you all to memorize this verse. This verse has brought me such comfort probably hundreds of times. Genesis 50, 20, Joseph is talking to his brothers. At this point, the brothers know it's Joseph, okay? He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. That's true. They meant evil against him. There was nothing good about what they wanted to do. You meant evil against me. But there's more to the story. The story does not stop there. But God meant it for good to bring it about and many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant evil against me. That is true. But that's not the whole story. God meant it for good. So the brothers meant evil against Joseph, selling him into slavery, but God meant their evil actions for good. Now, God never committed any evil. God never was evil. God is never evil, but God intended, planned, purposed their evil to bring about great good. This is such an important truth for us to understand. We'll be talking about it over the next weeks. See, God didn't just step in after his brothers had planned and done their evil. Oops, what's happening down there with Joseph? And he didn't just step in and, and turn it around for good. He had planned ordained. He meant what the brothers did to bring about great good. And this is not just what God does for Joseph. This is what God does for every one of us who are trusting Jesus Christ. Every one of us. Look at Romans 8.28. That's what Paul says. He says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose and as you look at that word called in the next few verses it's clear that this is talking about those who are called and are trusting Jesus Christ they're completely forgiven for all their sins and so God has sworn I'm going to work everything in your life for good what others mean for evil what Satan means for evil I've meant 
for good. And in the rest of Romans 8, we see that what that good is, is being conformed into the image of Jesus Christ, which means seeing his glory so clearly that we are transformed and we shine with his glory. We see his glory, we rejoice in his glory, we shine with his glory. The greatest joy in the universe is seeing feeling and shining with the glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God's glory is shining through Jesus, and that's the greatest joy. So God's working everything out in your life to bring you the greatest joy of beholding and shining with the glory of Jesus Christ. So those of you who are in seemingly hopeless situations, understand what this means. This is the third takeaway. When things look hopeless, Trust that God is working to bring you great good. Can you feel how at the end of Genesis chapter 37, everything looked hopeless? It doesn't get more hopeless than that. Completely hopeless. There is not a chance that these promises are going to be fulfilled. This is absolutely terrible. This is devastating. I guess the brother's evil has won out over God's purposes. It's hopeless. That's how we feel at the end of verse 37. But even though everything looks hopeless, it is not. God is working. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. He's planned all of this to bring Joseph great good and the people of Israel great good and through the Messiah, all of us who are trusting him, great good. There's an analogy, an illustration that you've probably heard. It's of a tapestry. And a tapestry has two sides to it. And uh, the front side, which is like a, a beautiful picture, right? You're all familiar with tapestries? But if you try to look at the other side, it's just this jumble of threads on the back, right? Same tapestry, one side, jumble of threads, other side, beautiful picture. When things are looking completely hopeless, you're looking at the other side of the tapestry. It just doesn't make any sense at all. These threads are just complete chaos and confusion. This is ugly. I don't understand what's going on. But God is the, the master artisan. He's the craftsman. He's the weaver who's weaving a beautiful tapestry. And you can know because it's promised in God's word that even though it looks to you like it is a hopeless, confused mess, it is a thing of beauty which you will one day see. So trust him. Trust him. Trust him. It's such a powerful thing when, when God's people can stand in a situation which looks completely hopeless and say, I know my Redeemer lives. I know God will be faithful. He has not forsaken me. He will not abandon me. He loves me. That's what Abraham said, in hope against hope he believed, and Abraham at over 100 years old, God fulfilled the promise he and Abraham had a child. Think about the cross, the hopelessness seemingly of that, the Messiah killed. Three days later, the tomb's empty. He rose. This happens again and again and again and again in the Bible. This will happen again and again and again and again in your life. Trust him, trust him, trust him. The tapestry is beautiful. You will see it one day. Trust his promises. When things look hopeless, trust that God is working to bring you great good. He's at work. He's planned all of this to bring you great good. 
just as he planned and did in the life of Joseph. So Grace Church, trust him. Trust him. Trust him. He will not fail you. Let's stand and pray. Before we pray, I just want to, want to mention some of you, what you need to be thinking about this morning is that you need to trust Jesus. Because this is all about what is true for those who are reconciled to God, forgiven by God, no longer under his curse, under his blessing because of what Jesus the Messiah did in paying for our sins. And so I would encourage you right now Look at the love of God and how he took care of Joseph. Look at the love of God in promising the Messiah. Look at the love of God in making a way for us to be completely forgiven. God is so great and so merciful. He's made a way for us to be completely forgiven for our sins. And he repeated that promise of the Messiah and secured that promise of the Messiah and he sent the Messiah. And Jesus came and he died and he rose and we can be forgiven and reconciled to God and move from being under the curse to being under the blessing. So some of you need to put your trust in Jesus this morning. You may have been going to church all your life, and yet deep down inside you know you're not trusting Jesus. Or maybe you've, maybe this is the first time of being in a church, and you're not trusting Jesus. But Lord, I pray that you would touch those right now who are not trusting Jesus Christ, and that they would see your love, your mercy, your greatness, your forgiveness in sending your own son, Jesus the Messiah. And Lord, that they would trust Jesus and be forgiven right now. Lift guilt off of them. Pour your pardoning love, forgiving love upon them, I pray. And then Lord, I pray for those who, who are here going through a hopeless, a seemingly hopeless situation. Oh, Father, right now, through your word, spark faith in their hearts. Strengthen their faith. Give them hope. Fill them with hope, I pray, that they would know that you are at work in this seemingly hopeless situation to bring them great good. You're not surprised by this. You've planned this. This is a gift from you to them, and you're going to bring them great blessing. Lord, let them trust you. Let them trust you. Let them trust you, I pray. In Jesus' name.